informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us. Very busy show today with lots going on. Of course, uh, the House took another step towards uh, getting a farm bill done yesterday, voting to move to conference committee, also named their conferees to uh, work on the farm bill. House Speaker Ryan named 29 Republicans as conferees. Uh, Nancy Pelosi selected 18 Democrats to be on the committee. A majority of them, 23 of them, are on the Ag Committee. And uh, now they wait for the Senate. They're expected to vote on a motion to go to conference and name their conferees probably next week. So another step in the farm bill process. Meanwhile, big hearing yesterday in Michigan on the RFS. We're going to be talking about that with Jarrett Renshaw with Reuters here in just a moment. Big news from the Renewable Fuels Association. Bob Deneen, president and CEO of the RFA, is uh, going to be stepping down from that position in October. Jeff Cooper will take that position. Bob's still going to be uh, with RFA. We're going to talk with him coming up in our next segment. Great spokesperson, tremendous leader for renewable fuels. Uh, Looking forward to having Bob on to talk about uh, this next step for him here in just a moment. Chris Galen with the National Milk Producers Federation will join us. We talked about this yesterday. Big news. FDA finally admitting they need to uh, enforce these labeling rules on imitation dairy products. And we'll talk about that with Chris. Then Aaron Hager with the University of Illinois will join us to give us an update on dicamba issues this year. All that coming up on today's program. As I said, National Energy Markets reporter for Reuters, Jarrett Renshaw, joins us. Jarrett, thanks for being with us. Interesting hearing in Michigan yesterday. It was supposed to be about RVO levels, but it really turned into the opportunity, a platform for the uh, renewable fuels industry to let EPA know what they thought about these uh, small refinery waivers from the RFS. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, was kind of ironic that the EPA, you know, in its in its rules that they weren't going to take any comments or consider any comments on the small refining waivers, and it's, clearly that's all the biofuel industry wanted to talk about yesterday. You know, I, I, my kind of key takeaway, I think, is that, you know, we have a turnover in leadership, Pruitt's out, we have Wheeler in, and I think the, the, the biofuel folks see, they want to lay down a marker here and um, and see if this can kind of reset the table here um and i think they uh want to put this issue as front and center and uh, put them on notice that you know you got to have some answer to it one way or the other um so uh we'll see it's hard to tell how this is received inside the epa at this point you know yeah because we don't yet know how uh, Wheeler's going to handle the RFS, right? I mean, the renewable fuels industry is hopeful it's going to be better than than what Scott Pruitt did, but we don't really know. Yeah, I mean, the, once you, I mean, I think that one of the key questions is you you've had so many waivers here for sixteen and seventeen. Um, so if you then just backtrack and 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 shut it down or at least get back to the norm. I have to assume that's going to expose the EPA to lawsuits, right? Because you can't just kind of keep going back and forth on this. Um, so I, I, you know, it is a delicate situation for the EPA, um, one of their own doing, but certainly I don't know if it's you know, an easy fix. It seems to me there is a, a convenient way out is that you know, you, wind prices this year are, are significantly lower, 
so you could justifiably issue less waivers on the back of that and also kind of solve a political problem for you. Um, but, you know, we're certainly, uh, we're going to be, you know, the next six months are going to be key to see how that, see how he handles it. Because really you can't, I mean, they may have wanted a hearing just on RVO levels and not the, the exemptions, but that wasn't realistic because, as we've said so many times, the RVO levels really, I won't say meaningless, but uh, there's not as, as significant if you are going to continue to allow the waivers to uh, undermine those numbers. No doubt. I mean, there, the, the, you know, I think that's both, well, I know both sides will agree to that, but I think the, the both sides will agree that it certainly reduces the mandate, right? Um, and if you have a 15 billion uh, gallon mandate for ethanol and, you, you know, you, you, you exempt 30 refineries from doing it, and then, you know, then it becomes something like a 13.5 billion uh, gallon mandate. Um, so, I, yeah, that, and I think that's, you know, that, that is an issue, and that is an issue that the EPA is going to have to solve. You know, there seems to be a lot of chatter and back and forth from the biofuel and oil folks about demand destruction, blend rates being still being high, as high as they were. You know, part, I have to get try to separate and play referee on that. I'm, I'm still kind of unclear on, on how this is all shaping out in today's market. Um, you know, I think that is a key question. Other groups also spoke at the the hearing yesterday that, that had their take on the RFS. Uh, sure, uh, the, you know you have everybody from the the, the National Wildlife Foundation, um, other environmental groups. You certainly had uh, you know oil groups uh, who who like the waiver system because it is certainly even though it gives them uh, their competition advantage, it, it, it clearly has had downward pressure on rent prices. Uh, you saw them calling for, um, you know, tying RINs to exports, something that Pruitt considered at, at one point, um, bringing more transparency, kicking some speculators out of the markets. You know, there's, there's been a menu of options that have kind of always been on the table here. Um, so they certainly pleaded for those. Um, you know, like I said, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a one-way conversation, so unfortunately you don't really ever have this sense of, like, how the EPA is responding to it. Although there were some reports I read that the EPA understands the, 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 the waiver system and, 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 and is working to try to f- get a fix. That's kind of meaningless. I don't know what that means, but I, I get a sense that they heard um, and, the, and they realized that they have to have no answer is not going to be uh, uh, acceptable. They're going to have to give some explanation for their decisions moving forward, I think, and I think they understand that. So do you think in the future, if those exemptions are granted, those waivers are granted, that we will know about them at the time or or mm-hmm. not? Will it, will it be that transparent? I think we'll see more real-time data on the numbers and gallons. I still don't think we'll know who's getting them um, and why to some degree. Um, but I do think there will be some, some level of transparency. Um, as in terms of uh, that, that those kinds of numbers, and, and, and to be fair to the EPA, I mean, we when we as reporters ask for some aggregate numbers, you know, they're not super reluctant. You know, they have given them to us. So, I mean, I think that you know they deserve some credit for that. But you know, obviously, we would like to know who's getting them, um, and some more, some 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 bigger details, particularly in years past where there's no. There's no market advantage if you claim it, you know, knowing two years ago you got it, right? This not, that's not right. going to – it seems a pretty benign uh, fact. So, 
Real quick, Jared, the big question is, will those gallons be reallocated? What do you think? I don't see it. I don't see a pathway yet. I think, uh, you know, uh, I think the biofuel folks are going to fight hard to get those reallocations in the, uh, the final rule. They certainly have some time. They certainly have the, the opportunity for a reset. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the, the key here is to wait for some signals from the EPA. Um, you know, they're obviously that it's ultimately their decision. Um, so I want to predict one way or the other. It's a coin flip. All right, Jared, thank you. We'll keep talking about it and watch your reporting on it. Thank you so much. Hey, no problem. Thank you. Jarrett Renshaw, National Energy Markets Reporter for Reuters. Well, big news yesterday from the Renewable Fuels Association. Bob Deneen will be stepping down as president and CEO. He'll join us next to talk about it on Adams on Agriculture. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with a sun protection factor, or SPF, of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. UVA rays age the skin, UVB rays burn, and both cause cancer. But the perfect sunscreen doesn't count if you use it wrong. Don't need sunscreen on a cloudy day? Wrong. 80% of UV rays still get through the haze. Only use sunscreen at the beach? Nope. Anytime you're outside, UV rays attack the skin, so you need protection. And you have to reapply sunscreen every two hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Reason number 12 why you should own a Thermospas hot tub? They require no attachment to your home's plumbing. Thanks to the Thermospas unique built-in thermofiltration system that filters the water an incredible 144 times a day, you simply fill it with a garden hose and your water stays crystal clear with very little maintenance. Call to receive a free DVD and brochure and find out how you can own a Thermospas hot tub for only a few dollars a day. Right now, they're offering 0% APR financing with approved credit and a $1,000 savings coupon, including free delivery, free chemicals, and a cash discount. And with bottles starting at $4,995, there will never be a better time to own a Thermospas hot tub. So call now and ask about this limited time offer. Call Thermospas today at 800-991-5852 for your free DVD and brochure. That's 800-991-5852. Thermospas, hot tubs designed to improve your life. Call 800-991-5852 today to take advantage of 0% APR financing. All right, guys, we're ready for our four-season sunroom, and Daddy's going to get a rec room with refreshments. Oh, no, we'll be sleeping under the stars. Mom, what about the one with, you know, the fun? Nice try, little bro. It's a gym, my gym. Hey, Grandma's getting her Four Seasons garden room, weather tight and still like being outdoors. Maybe a living room. Oh, no, wait, a family hub. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what the budget, the season, or the climate, Four Seasons Sunrooms let you and your family enjoy the outdoors inside. Call now to hear more about these great offers from the premier manufacturer of sunrooms since 1975. More reasons for four seasons now. To find out more, call toll-free 800-988-4477. That's 800-988-4477. Call 800-988-4477 today. 
Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, little did I know when I scheduled Bob Deneen, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, to be on today, that this would be our topic of discussion. His big announcement that uh, he'll be moving on from President and CEO into a new role of Senior Strategic Advisor for the Renewable Fuels Association beginning in October. Bob, thanks for joining us. Uh, quite a change. Uh, tell us a little bit about your your thought process and what led you to this uh, this decision. Well, Mike, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on again, uh, and thanks for all that uh, you always do to, to keep folks uh, up to speed on what's important for agriculture. Uh, for me, look, it's been 30 years, uh, and that's just an awful long time. Uh, I'm proud of what uh, we've been able to do, uh, certainly in my small role in uh, the growth of the ethanol industry, but I really do think now is the right time for some new energy, new enthusiasm, new leadership at the association, and uh, thankfully there's somebody we can turn to, and Jeff Cooper, my current executive vice president, who will be president and CEO beginning in October, somebody who I have nothing but the highest regard for, and I know is going to be able to take this trade association and this industry to even higher levels, and I'm excited about the future. I'm I'm grateful that my board of directors has afforded me the opportunity to continue to contribute in in some way uh, because, like you, Mike, I've got a passion for uh, agriculture. I've got a passion for farmers and for this industry, and uh, I couldn't just walk away. Well, for those of us that have had the uh, pleasure of being at your annual meeting and hearing your annual State of the Industry Address, Never more uh, evident is than at that particular event is your passion for uh, for ethanol and for agriculture. I mean, it's a highlight for many of us each year to to see it and hear uh, you speak so passionately. That's why we call you uh, Reverend Bob. You're the Rev because uh, you get everybody fired up. You feel like you're at a uh, the old style uh, tent revival uh, meeting. Uh, so yeah, I know you're going to have that passion still, and I know Jeff will do a great job. And I think uh, the industry and the association is very fortunate to have someone like Jeff that can uh, uh, follow your lead here and, and take over at the helm. Uh, Bob, when you look back, though, over those 30 years, wow, the industry the uh, has come such a long, long ways, due in large part to leadership by you and others that are real champions for renewable fuels. What stands out in your mind over those 30 years? Well, as you say, when I started, we were producing about 600 million gallons a year, and, and this year uh, we'll produce more than 16 billion. Uh, it has been a tremendous ride. But, you know, frankly, uh, lobbyists in Washington, D.C. don't have very much to do with it. It's the pe- people uh, in the Midwest that have invested in the industry, developed the technologies, uh, committed to uh, ethanol production and corn production to make it all possible. and. Uh, I've just been riding that wave, and it has been uh, a lot of fun. We've seen some real changes in the industry, and as the industry has grown, it's become more efficient. Uh, It has been uh, very rewarding to see ethanol become a ubiquitous component of the U.S. motor fuel market uh, and, you know, helping to lower consumer prices and enhance uh, rural income. But I think the, the single most important thing that I will always uh, think about is 
uh, how I have borne witness to the transformation of many rural communities as an ethanol plant uh, was built and provided jobs and economic development opportunities and uh, you saw money coming back into the community uh, as a consequence and it, it is it is how ethanol has uh, been sewn into the fabric of rural America that is the the thing that I am, am constantly thinking about. I can remember sitting at a lot of meetings where farmers uh, were debating and w wondering whether they should invest uh, money into a small ethanol plant, small by today's standards. Uh, how could they overcome the hurdles, uh, the the you know the challenges of taking on big oil? How would they ever get uh, a real foothold in the marketplace? Here we are now with a foothold in the marketplace, trying to get more, still dealing with some of the same issues and obstacles, but. Uh, you talked about uh, your role. Well, your role was so important because you were that voice that was needed in Washington, D.C., in the halls of Congress, uh, with administrations at the White House, uh, to get that message to the highest levels. And uh, I, I certainly commend you, congratulate you, because you've done it in such a, a grand style and a very effective manner uh, that has enabled the industry to grow to where it is today. Well, thank you, Mike. But, uh, you know, really, uh, I, I think you and I are a lot alike in that we channel those farmers that we interact with, and we, and we have a passion for uh, what they do. And so, you know, I've always said, uh, if you don't have passion for this industry, you, you really ought to check your pulse. Uh, all I've done over the years is uh, try to connect with uh, the farmers that are building this industry and investing and value-added agriculture, and be their voice in Washington. You do that, and it's really easy uh, to be effective in, in this town. You know, when I look back at some of the the criticisms of ethanol and some of the things that have come up that uh, you've had to work through and overcome, I mean, they were they were laughable, except that they were serious at the time because some people took them seriously, and uh, they had to be dealt with. But uh, the progress has been made to get to here. As you look forward now, Bob, what do you see as the next step? Where does the industry go from here? Well, of course, we're very focused on getting to those higher-level blends, uh, taking advantage of ethanol's high-octane characteristics. And as auto companies are looking to uh, build more efficient vehicles, they will need a higher-octane fuel. We want to make sure that ethanol is the source of that octane that oil companies don't co-opt that debate uh, and, and assure that uh, the higher octane fuels just mean more aromatics and more petroleum uh, sourced octane, uh, because that's not just bad for farmers, it's bad for consumers, and it's bad for the environment. But that's really where the next debate is going to be. Uh, I think we're well poised to uh, make some progress there. Uh, but there's always going to be, you know, opposition. Uh, the folks that uh, want to see the incumbent fuel succeed, are highly motivated, and uh, have unlimited resources. So the battle is always going to be right in front of us. But we will succeed. Uh, we always succeed uh, because farmers, uh, at the end of the day, uh, are an incredibly powerful force in Washington, D.C., uh, and across the country. And uh, the public policy imperative for domestic renewable fuels like ethanol and biodiesel and other advanced biofuels 
is more critical today than ever before. So I'm optimistic about the future. I'm excited about my new role and, and how I can continue to contribute and the, the passion that I have for uh, farmers and, and this industry will never subside. Well, tell us about your new role as Senior Strategic Advisor for the Renewable Fuels Association. Well, I'll be able to uh, perhaps write a little bit more. I'll be able to work with the Board of Directors and with Jeff Cooper to uh, you know, uh, develop the tactics and, and strategies necessary for us to continue to be successful. Uh, I imagine I'm still going to be traveling. I'm still going to be uh, speaking out because, uh, look, I'm just a, a loquacious Irishman, and, and you can't really shut me up. So I'll, st- I'll still be out there and, and uh, helping Jeff, helping the board, and hopefully helping the industry move forward. Bob, are, how frustrated are you that after all these years, we're still dealing with some of the same issues, some of the same misconceptions, some of the same uh, criticisms that have been proven to be wrong time and time again, but we still deal with them over and over again? Well, I'd be lying to you if it wasn't times that I felt like hitting my head against the ball. But, you know, uh, it is what it is. And you just have to keep on educating people. And, and yeah, the the arguments against ethanol really haven't changed very much over the years. The volume of the uh, attacks has increased as the industry has become a more uh, important factor in the U.S. motor fuel market. But really, you know, I, I kind of look at some of that criticism as a badge of honor, Mike, because if we were not succeeding, if we were not making a dent in uh, U.S. energy supplies, if if we were not more than just a gnat on the tail of the oil industry, uh, to you know, and, and have become uh, such a powerful force and a real threat uh, to their domination mm-hmm. at the pump, then they'd ignore us. Then, then so the the fact that we continue to be attacked and they've got to drag out the same old stuff really just means we are growing, we are succeeding, we are doing what we should be doing. My friend, thank you very much for all you've done for agriculture, for the renewable fuels industry, and for me. Thank you so much. Look forward to working with you in the future in a different capacity. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Bob Deneen with Renewable Fuels Association will soon be their senior strategic advisor. Good luck to Jeff Cooper. We look forward to working with him as new president and CEO. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. A lot can happen in six seconds. A rodeo ride, a dramatic basketball win, and the world record holder can solve a Rubik's Cube. Six seconds is how long it takes for an 18-wheeler traveling at a safe speed to come to a complete stop. And in those six seconds, that truck will travel the length of two football fields. So please, give them room. Never cut in front of a large truck for any reason. Our roads, our safety. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov.
Time for Market Check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. In the grain and oilseed sector, a Thursday mix showing some strength in wheat and corn, but a bit defensive in soybean futures, around four and a fraction lower an hour into the trading day. The ag weather forecast calling for showers and thunderstorms to cross the Midwest over the balance of the week. On the radar maps, rain in the eastern Dakotas, southeastern Iowa expected to move into southern Minnesota later in the day onto the eastern Midwest from there. Too much rain around northwestern Iowa. Meanwhile, southern plains crop areas will be mainly dry and hot through the end of the week. That's going to be stressful to corn, soybeans, sorghum, and hay. In the wheat futures, we're trending a half dozen higher in Kansas City. Chicago wheat, seven and a fraction higher. Minneapolis spring wheat, a half dozen better. Corn futures, two to two and a fraction higher. The new crop, December contract, flirting with 10-day moving average resistance around 360 and a half. On the upside for new crop November beans, we continue to test initial 10-day moving average resistance at 858 and a half when we entered Thursday's session. For livestock in the Merck, we saw a Wednesday bounce in cattle futures, a bit more subdued on this Thursday with feeder cattle in a mix, 20 cents on either side of steady, nickel to 15 cents higher nearby live cattle. No reportable cash cattle trade in the central and southern plains yesterday. We're seeing bids renewed at 108 on this Thursday, asking prices 114 to 115. The online Fed Cattle Exchange auction yesterday, seeing sales of 112 on 142 heads, slightly above last week's going rate of 111. Lean hog futures trending 60 to a dollar higher. On Wall Street, the Dow trending 96 points lower, crude oil up a dollar 13 a barrel. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network. I'm Rusty Halverson. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip-flop all night long. I would wake up with a sore neck, maybe a headache, or feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. When I invented my pillow, I wanted it to where you could move the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep sleep faster, and you will stay there longer. It's not about how much time we spend in bed. It's about how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all of my own manufacturing right here in the United States. I have a a 10-year warranty. You can wash and dry my pillow, and I give you a 60-day money-back guarantee so you have nothing to lose. And here's my best offer ever. You can buy one of my pillows and get one absolutely free. Go to MyPillow.com or call 800-871-7280 now and use promo code FARM11 to take advantage of Mike's buy one, get one free deal. This offer expires on August 1st, so don't delay. Order now by calling 800-871-7280 or go to MyPillow.com and use promo code FARM11. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, this week, uh, some words from FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb that uh, probably some in the dairy industry wondered if they would ever hear. As the commissioner indicated that his agency intends to crack down on plant-based products being labeled with terms like milk and yogurt, and that the they will take a look at their standards of identity, saying there is a reference to a lactating animal. Gottlieb saying an almond doesn't lactate, I will confess. So the question becomes, have we been enforcing the standard of identity? And the answer is probably not. 
Joining me now, Chris Galen, Senior Vice President of Communications for the National Milk Producers Federation. Chris, I, I would imagine that a lot of folks in the dairy industry probably said, finally, finally we're hearing these words after all these years. Yeah, we said, amen, brother. Come around to our point of view <laughs> that, yes, you don't got milk if it comes from a nut. Uh, almonds and other plant-based products don't lactate. So we were encouraged by that, certainly, Mike. Uh, the devil's in the details, though, so we're not holding our breath thinking that all of a sudden FDA is going to wake up and take enforcement actions. The commissioner did say they're going to move towards that direction. It's a process that will probably take at least a year. And so our our big focus now is making certain that any change in enforcement, which he talked about, actually enforces the current existing standards, saying that milk comes from animals, not from nuts or seeds or grains. Now, he said that whatever road the agency goes down, litigation will likely follow, saying invariably we're going to get sued probably. And then he said if you open up FDA's standard of identity, it talks about a lactating animal. But then he said if you open up a dictionary, it talks about milk coming from a lactating animal or a nut. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, this is an argument that, frankly, a lot of the vegans who are fighting this issue have said that, well, the dictionary defines milk as an opaque opaque white liquid substance, not just an animal product. But we don't define in law milk uh, based on what it says in Webster's or Funk and Wagnalls or uh, any other dictionary. It's not what you see on Wikipedia. It's defined as an animal product in the law. That's the relevant definition. So are there going to be some of these vegan groups that want to sue FDA and probably will? I wouldn't be surprised. Their argument is actually pretty weak, though. They're saying that companies that sell these plant-based fake milks should have a First Amendment constitutional right to call them what they want. But there's a limit to that in commercial speech. I can't sell a soda product and call it Coca-Cola and then not expect within the week to get a call from the lawyers in Atlanta saying, hey, we were there first. This is a protected name. You can't use our brand. It's a little bit different here with milk because milk's not a brand, but it is a legally defined term, and there's a limit to how much you can go out there and use these terms on products that are definitely not milk or, or dairy. And as you referred to earlier, his comments about it's going to take a while. They'll go through a public comment period, and uh, this could take up to uh, to a year. We know how these things can go on. So it, it now becomes the process, but at least that process has started. Absolutely. And so there's going to be a hearing a week from today, Mike, uh, in the Washington suburbs that FDA is having on a broader issue of nutrition standards. And as part of that, they're looking at labeling. And it looks like that is the comment period that the commissioner commissioner Gottlieb was referring to when he says we're going to take input from the public process that all digest it and then come up with a standard that we will enforce so again our concern and our hope both flip side of the same coin is that the standards that they end up enforcing are essentially the same ones that we have now saying that milk comes from animals I should also point out for your listeners Mike that the US actually has the same definitions for milk and cheese and yogurt as most every other country in the world. Up in Canada, in England, in the European Union, they all define milk as an animal product, not a plant-based source. The difference is that those other countries, including Canada, enforce those laws. Here in the U.S., our government does not. And the commissioner admitted that as much. He said that they're going to take a different approach going forward, but we just need to make certain that the FDA does things in consist, uh, consistently with international standards as well as with the existing U.S. standard. 
Chris, any uh, idea on why, after all these years, FDA is finally going to address this issue? It's the confluence of several things. One is that the National Milk Producers has been banging on FDA's door for years now, and we've really redoubled those efforts since Scott Gottlieb became commissioner about a year and a half ago. So I think he's hearing more, uh, I'll call them hoof steps, <laughs> from, the, from the dairy animals. Uh, it, part of it also, let's, for, let's face it, is that there are so many of these fake dairy products out there now that it's just gotten ridiculous that you could have hemp milk and quinoa milk and all these other products. So I think they've recognized that in the absence of a strong regulatory process, uh, there's just been a Wild West environment here. And then the, the other thing I think that may be leading towards this is that FDA says they want to regulate this new lab-grown clean meat, quote-unquote clean meat. Uh, there was a big hearing on that last week. So what we've said is, hey, if you're going to take a stronger posture and actually regulate this lab-based meat product and not let uh, USDA do it, well, first you've got to show that you're serious about uh, regulating the products under your jurisdiction currently, including these fake dairy products. So they can hardly claim that they're going to be a strong regulator of the new lab-based meats if, in fact, they're turning a blind eye to the uh, lab-based and and, um, processed fake milk products. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier in the week with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and others about this labeling issue. But that whole uh, lab meat or imitation meat or whatever they want to call it, uh, that kind of helped push this issue a little more to the forefront once again. Yeah, absolutely. So to answer your question, there's a lot more happening in the whole food space these days on these imitation products and the regulators are behind the curve. The technology and the marketing, which is what we've been talking about, has really moved faster and more aggressively than what the USDA or FDA, in this case, have been able to keep up with. And so they really just need to get their ducks in a row. We're talking with Chris Galen, Senior Vice President, Communications for the National Milk Producers Federation. Chris, also some interesting comments this week from Canadian Deputy Ambassador to the U.S., uh, Kirsten Hillman, saying that scrapping... The nation's dairy supply management system, a proposal the U.S. made in the NAFTA renegotiation, is unacceptable and said there are a lot of misunderstandings surrounding dairy when it comes to the Canada-U.S. trading relationship. What do you make of that? Well, our point to them, and, and I would say this in relation to the recent comments, but we've been saying this for over a year now, is that if Canada is going to manage its dairy supply, then they need to manage the supply. Uh, here's here's a quick question for you and your listeners: Which country has actually seen the largest percentage increase in its milk production over the last three years? It's not New Zealand. It's not any of the European countries. It's not the U.S. It's Canada. So they're actually growing their milk production very quickly, and a lot of that is due to increased demand for milk fat, for things to make into butter and cheese and whole milk yogurt. But the problem is then they have this excess milk production in the form of dairy proteins, skim milk powders, and that's what they're dumping on international markets, and it's hurting our prices. It's hurting the prices of farmers in Europe and Oceania. So the really galling thing about Canada's posture is they're like, oh, well, we have this supply management system. It works very well, and we're not really uh, doing anything to hurt anybody outside of our borders. Well, that's just not the case. And it's not just the U.S. 
complaining about it, although we certainly have. Other countries as well are really upset with Canada for using this new pricing system they have to dump their products at fire sale prices in international markets. So again, it gets back to uh, supply management's all fine and well if they're managing the supply, but it's not working for them right now. It's certainly not working for us. What are you hearing on NAFTA? Because it's kind of gone quiet, other than we've heard about Mexico and Canada would like to get it done by the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, we still we still hear from President Trump. He might he's still kind of looking at a deal with just Mexico. What are you hearing? Well, mostly the same things. I don't think anyone know exactly what the end game is going to look like. I saw there was a story this morning in the Wall Street Journal to your recent comment that Mexico would like to see things wrapped up with the U.S., uh, but that's not the same thing as wrapping it up among all three nations. And so the issue really is how quickly can we um, get things done in a way that's satisfactory. We don't want to see a rush to a deal that does not deal with the situation in Canada that I was just describing. Uh, There was a feeling earlier in the spring that things would be on hold until the Mexican presidential elections get resolved. That obviously now has already happened. So we'll see what happens in the summer. The issue, of course, in Washington, as well as many other places, is that the pace of things slows down in July and August. And we're heading towards our elections uh, in November, so be watching that. And that, too. Yeah, yeah, so... uh, Certainly a, a, a lot going on uh, to keep an eye on, and I know you're watching closely the Farm Bill because that will also have an mm-hmm. impact on dairy. We're watching the Farm Bill, and then the other thing is that in the House of Representatives, Mike, there's new a new bill introduced yesterday for ag guest workers. So we are hoping that that gets voted on and approved. Uh, the House has failed twice in recent weeks to approve any immigration legislation. We're hoping that the third time will be the charm there. And then getting back to the Farm Bill, they're going to begin conferencing on that this summer. Uh, let's hope that they can find a path forward on the food stamp uh, worker issue, which is the big sticking point between the House and the Senate. Uh, the dairy stuff, there's some minor differences, but nothing that can't be reconciled. Uh, but we really need to see a new farm bill, not a six-month or two-year extension. That would be our big concern, is that they kick the can down the road through 2019, and dairy farmers need something better and more uh, more new than that. We don't want to see just an extension of what we have now. A lot of big issues for sure, and again, as we started off and, and talked mostly about uh, the FDA commissioner's words about uh, uh, cracking down and labeling on imitation dairy products, and we'll see if his actions uh, back up uh, the words that we're hearing so far, but at least we're hearing the exactly. words that we've been waiting a long time to hear. Good to hear from you, Chris. Thanks a lot. Take care. Sure thing, Mike. Chris Galen, Senior Vice President, Communications for the National Milk Producers Federation. All right. Dicamba. Are we getting a lot of complaints about damage this year? What What's going on with dicamba? We'll talk about it with Aaron Hager, Associate Professor of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois, coming up next on Adams on Agriculture. What if you had a medical emergency away from home? What you need is Mobile Help, America's premier mobile medical alert system. Most systems only work at home, but with Mobile Help, you get help outside the home with coverage nationwide on one of the largest cellular networks at the press of a button. I press the button, and lo and behold, the emergency came within minutes. Mobile Help did save my life. No question about that. Call Mobile Help now for a free color brochure. We'll send you everything you need, including the base station, the patented mobile device, 
the waterproof pendant and wrist button. You can also add the fall button that automatically detects falls and signals help. Call today and receive a risk-free 30-day trial. There's no equipment to buy and no long-term contract. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free emergency key box with your plan purchase. Remember, mobile help keeps you safe coast to coast. Call 800-930-6137 now for your free mobile help brochure. That's 800-930-6137. Again, 800-930-6137. Reason number 12 why you should own a Thermospas hot tub? They require no attachment to your home's plumbing. Thanks to the Thermospas unique built-in thermofiltration system that filters the water an incredible 144 times a day, you simply fill it with a garden hose and your water stays crystal clear with very little maintenance. Call to receive a free DVD and brochure and find out how you can own a Thermospas hot tub for only a few dollars a day. Right now, they're offering 0% APR financing with approved credit and a $1,000 savings coupon, including free delivery, free chemicals, and a cash discount. And with bottles starting at $4,995, there will never be a better time to own a Thermospas hot tub. So call now and ask about this limited time offer. Call Thermospas today at 800-991-5852 for your free DVD and brochure. That's 800-991-5852. Thermospas, hot tubs designed to improve your life. Call 800-991-5852 today to take advantage of 0% APR financing. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with a sun protection factor, or SPF, of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. UVA rays age the skin, UVB rays burn, and both cause cancer. But the perfect sunscreen doesn't count if you use it wrong. Don't need sunscreen on a cloudy day? Wrong. 80% of UV rays still get through the haze. Only use sunscreen at the beach? Nope. Anytime you're outside, UV rays attack the skin, so you need protection. And you have to reapply sunscreen every two hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. We paid less for our Craftmatic today than we did 20 years ago. If you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and free information on today's Craftmatic adjustable beds. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Rated number one by consumers nationwide on ConsumerAffairs.com. Craftmatic beds come in all mattress types, including cool gel memory foam for up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Enjoy temporary relief of low back pain, poor circulation, nighttime heart for a mild arthritis. You'll sleep better in a Craftmatic adjustable bed. So if you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and information. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Discover Craftmatic for less, up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Call 1-800-318-7903. That's 1-800-318-7903. 1-800-318-7903. Call now. Do you need a car? Been shopping only to be turned down because of bad credit, low credit, no credit, bankruptcy, or divorce? Guess what? Today's your lucky day. Because now you can buy a car, truck, or SUV, just about any vehicle. It's true. Bad credit doesn't matter. No credit doesn't matter. Bankruptcy or divorce, it just doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, your job is your ticket to your new vehicle. We're Auto Credit Express, and we've helped thousands of people just like you. 
Antonio H. told us, great company. Got me connected, and the day I went in, I drove off in the car I wanted. 100% worth your time. Need a car? Get started now and drive off as early as today. Just go to 11ignoremyscore.com right now. That's www.11ignoremyscore.com. Auto financing the easy way. 11ignoremyscore.com. Get started today. Auto financing the easy way. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, the last couple of years, dicamba has been a big, big issue. We knew this was a critical year coming into this cropping season about the future of uh, having dicamba as a tool for farmers. Let's get an update from Associate Professor of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois, Aaron Hager. Aaron, thanks for joining us. It's Dicamba's not been in the headlines as much, but have there been issues are we are we getting complaints out there and if so how would the, the number compare to years past it's not real easy for me mike to, to speak for any other states but here in illinois we are probably going to approach the same number of complaints official complaints that were filed with our department of agriculture as we did last year and it looks like our estimates of affected soybean acres non dicamba soybean acres is going to be very very similar to last year again even with all the education, even with all the steps that have been taken, we've seen no uh, improvement in the number of uh, uh, complaints and cases out there? I wouldn't say there's been no improvement. Uh, matter of fact, I would say based on the training that it helped a lot because what we have seen this year, I think, is a lower frequency of damaged fields that clearly were due to physical drift during the application. I think there's fewer instances that we have seen where damage more than likely resulted from a contaminated sprayer moving into a field. But this year, the frequency of seeing extreme uniformity of cupping of symptoms from side to side and headland to headland, in my opinion, is much higher than last year. So I think the commercial retailers in Illinois have done a much better job making the applications, putting them on target this year. But again, it's dicamba, and these formulations are not no volatile formulations. And about the only way that I know of to uniformly have symptoms across the 120-acre field is through a volatility event. All right. So just to be clear, you think uh, because there have been questions in the past, was it due to uh, not following the label or, or, you know, or making mistakes in application? You think a lot of that's been cleaned up and cleared up, but it's the issue with the product itself? Well, none of the training last year ever, at least from the manufacturers, the volatility was not discussed. And how, how do you overlook that as a route of exposure? The universities that have looked at volatility, an easy way to say this is that their data actually support the manufacturers' claims that these formulations are not no volatile formulations. There remains volatility. And if you're now applying a low volatility formulation, across hundreds of thousands of acres during the same day or during the same week when temperatures are in the mid to upper 90s. You know, the question around volatility is not an if, it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be how extensive is it. We talked about coming into this year being a critical year for the future of dicamba as a tool for farmers. So based on what you're seeing and hearing this year, what do you think happens moving forward? Well, that's a decision that rests squarely with the U.S. EPA. And 
I don't know what their decision is going to be on this. They haven't reached out to contact me this summer, so I don't really know what direction that they're leaning. We had a meeting with them in, in April with Weed Science Society out in Washington, but that's been really about the last contact I've had with them. I hear from a lot of farmers who use the product, like the product, say they have, have no problems and they don't want to lose it. Are you hearing that too? Oh, I hear that a lot. And, and, and I have a very standard response too. And that and is, that? how do you know that you didn't hurt anybody? Did you actually install any air sampling equipment in any field that you treated with dike? Whether or not that you had volatility? And what happens if you had a field where it did volatilize two days later, got hung up in inversion and moved three miles down the road? So what do you think is the answer? What is what is there a way to continue to use the product to, to if not uh, eliminate, at least to greatly minimize these issues? I think there is. But in, in this, this timing, this post-emergence timing in soybean, I think we've got two years now of very broad experience that suggests it's going to be very, very difficult to maintain that application timing. There is still utility of dicamba. Don't get me wrong. I've never said that there's not utility of dicamba in a soybean system. But there's two things that we really have to focus on. Number one is all avenues of off-target exposure. And to simply say that one doesn't exist or that we don't want to talk about it because that's a product liability issue does not mean it doesn't happen. And the other thing is we have to steward the technology around resistance. If I drive around the state and I'm seeing water hemp plants that are a foot and a half, two foot tall and all twisted up with dicamba, that's not very good product stewardship. And if we're not careful on how we use the technology, if we assume that we have labels moving forward, I'm going to say in about three years, Mother Nature is going to fix this problem for us. We're talking with Aaron Hager, Associate Professor of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois. Aaron, what are the biggest weed issues that you're seeing this year? Well, in terms of frequency or difficulty to control, without a doubt, our, our number one target species remains water hemp. Uh, we've got populations that have evolved resistance now to herbicides from five different side of action families. We've got one about five miles from my office. It's about 30-fold resistance to 2,4-D. So these are things that can happen. These are things that are going to happen. That's why it's really important, and we really try to stress this, regardless of if it's dicamba, if it's Liberty Link, if it's in the list when that hits the marketplace. We have to do a really better job in understanding that resistance is simply an evolutionary process. It's going to happen. There are a lot of things that we can do to slow that process down. But just to say that we're going to open up a new jug and fix this problem, we've tried that before with this, with this species, and we failed every time ultimately. So what is that next step in battling water hemp? Well, we know how to win. We've known that for years. Uh, the fact is the, the way that you win against water hemp is not just opening up a new jug and pouring a tank. Again, if we haven't learned that by now, we haven't learned anything about the evolution of resistance. The way that you win this against a five-way resistant water hemp population is you have to target the most vulnerable stage in the plant's life cycle. And that's not a two-inch tall water hemp. The most vulnerable stage is the seed. And the vulnerability lies in the fact that these seeds do not remain viable in the soil seed bank indefinitely. It's not like a velvet leaf that's going to hang around 40, 50, 60 years. You're probably talking, on average, somewhere between 7 and 10 years, and that viability is gone. So how do you use that to win? Well, whatever you can do. And that's not easy. That's not always inexpensive. 
but whatever you can do to preclude any water hemp from making seed in a field, if you can do that for about three years in a row, your population numbers are going to start to plummet. That's how you All right. Aaron, thanks a lot. Good information. Appreciate it. Thank you. Aaron Hager, Associate Professor of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois. Thanks for joining us. Busy program today. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow on Adams on Agriculture.